Welcome to the North Star Unplugged podcast, brought to you from Bozeman, Montana. Your host is Kristen Rainey, the founder and CEO of North Star Sleep School, providing online and in-person sleep courses to help you get better rest. The North Star Unplugged podcast is about rest and rejuvenation, and it's also about unplugging from technology, transitions, and transformations, and spending time and energy on the things that really matter, which are different for all of us. You can find the audio version of the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you want to watch the interviews, go to YouTube and search for the North Star Unplugged channel. Finally, you can also see all prior episodes on the North Star Sleep School website at www.northstarsleepschool.com. Welcome to another episode of North Star Unplugged. I'm your host, Kristen Rainey, and today we have Charlie Hall, who's the inventor of the waterbed. Charlie is based on Bainbridge Island, a ferry ride away from Seattle, where, of course, he sleeps on a waterbed himself. He's also the inventor of 40 other patents for products also dealing with water, ranging from inflatable kayaks to solar showers. Charlie, welcome to the show, and thanks for taking the time to be with us today. Thanks. It's great to be here. So let's rewind to 1967 uh, when you were in grad school at San Francisco State. You were studying industrial design, and you created a 300-pound gelatin-filled chair for your master's thesis project. Tell us about this chair. Oh, the, the chair was a, um, a great lead-in to um, finding out about pressure points because it was um, very comfortable, um, and it allowed all the pressure that would normally be on your tailbone, your bottom, to spread around a little bit, and you'd sink gradually into it, and it kind of enveloped you. But the practicality of it was a little lacking in that it was extremely heavy. You couldn't really move it around your house. And it also was – it taught me a few things. It it was cold and clammy because my apartment was cold and clammy. So I, I found, okay, you got to match temperatures of your skin to what you're sitting on to make it feel more comfortable. And um, other elements that were um, prominent after that experiment. And I decided to spend my time on something you spend more time in, your bed. And that was what it evolved to, yes. And for the, for the critique itself of this project, your fellow students and professor were actually at your apartment. Is that right? Because the chair was too heavy to move? Yes. I, I had developed uh, a bed at that time, too, so that they saw the bed and the chair. Yeah. And, and what, what was their response? What did they think of, of these? Well, uh, people seeing a waterbed for the first time really didn't know what to make of it. It was all this big, sloshy, um, uh, sensuous sort of thing that gurgled and went back and forth. And, uh, you know, people had um, uh, no reference point for a bed that was like that. And um, I, I had been sleeping on it for a while, and I had discovered the, the importance of, a, of some features on it, though. The, uh, controlling the wave thing eventually and uh, making sure the temperature is right. And at this point, you were calling this the, the pleasure pit? Uh, that evolved into a product that was a kind of a multifunction piece of furniture I designed for. It would be taking the place of um, all kinds of things in your living room as the big functional conversation pit. And you could sleep on it, you could uh, lounge on it, you could relax on it with friends. Um, 
it had a stereo built in it. And this is the item that showed at the Cannery Gallery in 1968, August 68. And what did mattress companies in those days uh, think of the Pleasure Pit? Well, they, I uh, tried to interest the concept of what I was doing with mattress companies. And, uh, and I sent letters out to describe its effect or its um, uh, support qualities to mattress making companies. Never got an answer. It was too far afield from them to understand and didn't get one response. <laughs> so who were some of your first buyers? Uh, we had um, people that heard about it by word of mouth in, in Marin County. And I, my, my original kind of studio there was in um, Sausalito. And uh, we'd sell a bed. Someone would talk about it. Uh, we'd get a, a reference point. And people like one of the Smothers Brothers bought one early on. Uh, then we tried to get it into contemporary furniture stores in San Francisco. And due to um, a quirky fate, it wouldn't fit down the stairs to the basement where the owner wanted it to go, and it ended up in the front window of the store. So Herb Kane, a local columnist in the San Francisco Chronicle, would write about who was frolicking on the waterbed at lunchtime in the window. And, you know, those things sort of started to snowball, and it got a lot more interest in it. And we sold uh, quite a few beds at that point. And acquired interest from someone who wanted to invest in the company and thought there was a future in, in making it larger. So um, we, um, we took an investors in and started the bigger adventure. And this was uh, when you launched Interspace Environments? That's correct, yes. Mm-hmm. And you had, so you were selling this eventually in 32 stores around California, is that correct? Right. Uh, the stores were in major shopping centers, and um, we had a manufacturing that made the uh, frames, some wood and some plastic. And the waterbed was a complete item that we sold, though, and a, and a quality item that was um, it had a containing frame, a liner, and a heating system. So it was complete. And without those items, uh, without three of those things, it's really not a waterbed. Uh, by definition of the state of California, who, strangely enough, got into prohibiting the sale of just a vinyl bag that would go on the floor of an apartment or a dorm room and could create uh, a hazard if it leaked. Our waterbeds were really designed to to be correct uh, and not, not just a $29 bag of water on the floor. So the frame was essential to the definition of it being a yes. waterbed. <laughs> yes, because the, the tension on the vinyl of the bladder was very taut if it was not contained into something. And uh, a, just a plain bag of water is not, not the same thing. Unfortunately, everything with water in it was called a waterbed, and that was not commonly known at the time. And what were you charging for this product at that time? Our, I think our beds probably started retailing at over $300, $500 and fairly expensive um, at, at, that, at that era. And what happened to Interspace Environments? Well, it, it's, uh, it really pioneered the waterbed industry in California for because we, we spent um, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, actually on advertising. And created an industry in California, but the um, the concept wasn't really viable as a retail operation in a major mall where the 
where the rents were so expensive. And we had so many knockoffs of um, cheap items, it was hard to differentiate. Uh, and I think that the, um, the at that point, I had given up control and some, uh, some additional capital and more management that came in. I think they didn't really have a plan about how to, how to make it work in favor of a quality product. So, um, and I had also started another company at that late, later point and was making um, other items. Uh, my company called Basic Designs. Yeah, and I'm, I'm really excited to come back to, to hear more about basic designs. But before we go there, um, let's talk a little bit more about just the structure of the waterbed itself. If you compare a waterbed to a traditional mattress and frame, you know, what are some of the benefits? Because my understanding was always that a firm mattress was always better for your back. Um, tell us more. Is that not the case? No, it really isn't. And, and when I was developing and working on the waterbed, I talked to, um, I was really it was a project in human comfort and the chair was sort of the first version of that. And, and I talked to doctors and physical therapists and people that, that dealt with that, including like um, uh, doctors for um, athletes who after a game and they're all kind of beat up, they'd, they'd often find relief in a warm whirlpool bath at body temperature and the comfort sensation of floating and matching your skin temperature that came up also from um, like psychiatrists and people that have, you know, institutionalized patients that were soothed by being in a warm bath. So, you know, a lot of things pointed to the direction of um, flotation and comfort in the correct temperature. And what about the durability differences between a waterbed and a traditional mattress? Well, interestingly enough, uh, waterbed support doesn't change through the life of the product. And, you know, mattress springs and memory foam and all those items compress and they sag. But a waterbed is always going to be the same. The comfort does not change as the life of it goes on. And the life of a vinyl waterbed mattress is really very, very long. I've had some that are more than 25 years old, and I would change it out of... Um, just precaution, I guess, uh, because nothing lasts forever. But I was surprised that 25 years was a, it was in really good shape and no leaks on it. And how about uh, from a, a cleanliness perspective? How would you compare the waterbed with a traditional mattress? Well, it's very, um, it, that's a, one of the unique great features about a waterbed. If you're prone to allergies, uh, mattresses, conventional mattresses are kind of disgusting when you get all the, the um, body, they call it body ash, or it's basically dead skin and dust mites and everything else that filters down into the surface of, the, of, of a mattress. So that the thing actually, if you were to weigh a mattress that's um, brand new and one that's 10 years old, you'll find out the 10-year-old one has gotten a lot heavier and it's absorbed all this stuff. Um, Waterbeds, because you have a not a permeable surface you can wipe it with a cloth you can wash everything that's above it uh, above the mattress the vinyl mattress and it remains allergy free so are there any cons to the waterbed i mean what about you know weight or leakage or portability no. waterbeds were a very misunderstood product because you know the assumption was people would look at it as oh i'm going to get seasick on that well that's not the case and 
the modern water beds, especially ones that evolved later on and the new afloat mattress now, uh, is virtually motionless. And so that part was, was never an issue and certainly is not today. Um, the other part about weight, people thought, you know, they hear the weight of it. Okay, it weighs like 1,500 pounds or 2,000 pounds. If you had um, 10 people over for dinner, you're not worried about them falling through the dining room floor. And any normal construction, uh, anything built to normal codes and construction is way over the uh, load needs of a waterbed. So in any kind of normal construction, I never heard of any waterbed damaging a building. So. Got it. So by the by the 1980s, uh, waterbed sales had reached two billion. Uh, more than one in five of all beds sold were were waterbeds. What was contributing to um, the massive growth and the hype? How was it being branded? Well, waterbeds were uh, a very kind of um, I wouldn't say difficult sell. It required a certain amount of expertise from a salesperson who was going to be bombarded by a lot of questions from a, from a potential buyer. And a um, department store mattress sales guy really didn't have the knowledge to sell a waterbed very well. And waterbeds didn't do well in, a, in a department stores when they were first introduced because of that. So there became, I guess you call it, waterbed evangelists who, who were – Waterbed fans who started waterbed stores, and they had the knowledge and the expertise to to uh, explain the product to the customer, answer all the questions, deliver and set up the product, and um, it became a specialty store item and a very successful specialty store item. And was there a certain demographic that was buying most of the waterbeds? Um, it was fairly wide. I think it's, you know, often it started with younger people, but uh, people found out the comfort about it uh, and it, it spread to, um, you know, a larger uh, age span at that point. And um, same, same is true now. A lot of people remember their waterbed and the comfort and maybe they gave it up during a move or something like that. But now that, that's kind of the biggest buyer of a float mattresses right now are a lot of people who used to have waterbeds back uh, at that era. And what are some of the innovations you've seen in general in the mattress industry since then? Have there well, been any? Waterbeds were a disruptor product because prior to um, waterbeds, it was always coil count and firmer is better. And, you know, they talk about the damnest ticking on it or all kinds of kind of inconsequential things. Uh, pocketed coils and all these things, but um, waterbeds showed the the fact that compliance and comfort was really associated with getting the pressure points reduced on your back and on your shoulders and wherever wherever you sleep is on the side or back. Um, and this this is the advent. If you look at a memory foam mattress ad now, they read like old waterbed ads. They're trying to eliminate pressure points and the problem with a lot of memory foam is it doesn't have great longevity, especially if the if the uh, sleeper is uh, more than average body weight, and they also sleep rather hot for a lot of people, where they bounce heat body heat back to you. So 
you look at the ads that have a lot of, a lot of um, kind of band-aids to make it uh, less hot. They infuse gel and all kinds of stuff that they are putting in there that supposedly solve the problem but don't really do it. And over the years, you've had a number of other companies who've tried to copy what you've designed with the waterbed. Um, how, how has that gone and, and how has your success rate been so far in court in trying to up, up, uphold your patent? Oh, well, the waterbed, original waterbed patent did go to trial in uh, San Francisco against um, one of the major importer infringers and, and it was upheld by the, by the jury and I was awarded a, a royalty based on uh, on the damages that they found done, and um, that that was getting towards the end of the uh, waterbed or, or the original patent, um, which is 17 years at that point. Um, so the industry was, um, you know, in a more mature mature level at that point, and early on. Uh, patent was really not useful for a lot of people that had kind of uh, small garage businesses. It's just not, it just doesn't, um, it's not easy to pursue anybody with that. And I know you have, four, is it 40 or 50 other patents for other products? What, what? Camping and outdoor stuff. And actually 25 were related to waterbeds and waterbed improvements, uh, waveless uh, designs and all kinds of other designs that uh, evolved as waterbeds got more sophisticated. And the waveless is the less jostling, less of a feeling like you're on a boat. That's what the waveless means. Uh, well, yes. Uh, let, let me describe the the update. <laughs> yeah, the updates. Um, uh, about three years ago, some of friends that I, that I knew, and actually, uh, one is Keith in Florida, who is an uh, owner of um, City Furniture. Um, he thought that really waterbeds time has come again, and his. Our company originally was called uh, Waterbed City, and it was um, a, a large retailer in southern southern Florida on waterbeds. And so he, um, we, uh, with another uh, individual in Los Angeles, Michael Garrity, we designed um, an updated waterbed, which I tried to re-envision everything that was great about a waterbed, make it better, and eliminate any of the negatives. So the the uh, a float waterbed is the um evolution of that it has a perimeter frame of um foam so that there's no getting in and out over a rigid wood member so that that eliminated the ease of entry exit that some waterbeds had initially and it also had a stretch knit top which this material wasn't available originally when i was doing waterbed stuff um, it's a relatively new innovation and allows the um, the top of the mattress to be very compliant with the uh, with the waterbed section below, so that you can oversize the mattress, have a real flotation feel, eliminate more pressure by doing it in a um, oversized fashion. Plus, that that cover can zip off and go on the washing machine, and um, for allergy sufferers, uh, you can basically have a fresh bed um, anytime you want to take that off and wash it and just wipe the top of the mattress it's clean as new um, then the inside of this this bed has a, a special fiber component that provides support so that you don't touch bottom when you're sitting up and it also suppresses the motion 
uh, to a, a huge degree. It's, um, it's virtually waveless. And this, this version also has um, uh, a um, right and left side temperature control so that if one person wants to sleep at a warmer temperature or cooler temperature, you can adjust it like that. Uh, that's an option on it. And also a slightly firmer surface is an option on it, the afloat firm. Or the afloat, um, original afloat is without that, that option, but um, has more of a contouring feel. So it must be really exciting to be returning to to rethinking a design that you originally created 50 years ago. Was it sort of in the back burner of your brain or have you been continuing to tinker, you know, in your brain and think about it um, in the past years? I know you've had so many other projects and so many other designs you've been working on, but I guess how much has the waterbed been, um, you know, in your creative thought process over the years? Um, oh, oh, you know, you can't, I can't turn my brain off and, and <laughs> sleeping on a waterbed, Every night, you know, I think, well, this could be a little better. Mm. Or I don't like this feature or that feature, mm. and I can I can improve that. So I've I've adjusted them and redesigned the product over the years just for my own personal use. And this this version, though, I said, wow, this this one really. Uh, I had I had a bed in Santa Barbara, in my place down there, and um, I mess, messed with that enough to to increase the mattress size and do some other waveless aspects that made it really even better. And then I tuned it up some more so that it was even more compliant with a different top on it. And I said, wow, this is the best bed I've ever slept on. So I, I did um, a version uh, for my house up here and it was, um, it was great. It was just, I sleep better in a water bed. I just don't know how people can sleep on a hard mattress. It's just not, it just doesn't make sense when you consider what happens with your, uh, blood flow and shoulders getting all, um, you know, you have to turn over if your your blood flow is reduced to an area of your joints or, or surface of your skin that has no blood flow. You, your nervous system says, I got, I got nourishment needed here, so I got to turn over. So that's why you toss and turn more on a regular bed. Water bed, you'll go to sleep in one position. You'll wake up in the same position and... and I monitor my sleep through a couple different devices too, and just um, notice what works better too. What are your favorite tracking devices? Um, I use um, I've used the Sense as one that's not around anymore. There's um, what is it? Uh, sleep tracker. Yeah, I've, I've used that one, and I, I got a sleep report this morning that showed interestingly enough all the. Breathing rate, uh, heart rate, uh, times you woke up, what time you went to sleep. Slept eight hours and six minutes last night. That was good. And um, it doesn't um, it doesn't show you body temperature changes, but uh, almost everything else. Is eight hours pretty typical for you for a night of sleep? Yeah, yeah, it's seven and a half to eight hours, right? That's fantastic. And um, so how do you cope when you uh, go to hotels or you stay with uh, friends or family and, and you're not sleeping in a waterbed? Do you find that you, the quality of your sleep is not as good as when you're at home? Uh, yes, I do. And especially um, if it's a hotel with a hard bed, um, I really notice it. Um, it, it. Well, you sleep in a different place. Your sleep patterns are different anyway, but um, those, those, 
become adjusted a bit when you are there for a while. But um, I definitely noticed the mattress um, as far as quality of sleep as to whether I'm sleeping as much or as well. And why is now 2020 the time uh, to essentially bring back an updated version of the waterbed and, and to launch your new company and this new product afloat? Uh, this is, it's a perfect time because people are spending so much time at home and I think mm-hmm. they're, you know, they want their nest to be comfortable and mm-hmm. the, the bed is the most important part. And I'm, I'll wake up in the morning and said, mm, you know, there's really nothing I have to run out and do or meetings or anything else. I'm going to stay in bed with my laptop and this is the most comfortable place in the house. So I'm going to stay here. And some mornings I'll, you know, I'll wake up at seven and I'm in bed till 10 doing stuff on my computer or um, reading or things of, of that order because it's the best spot in the house. And is there a specific demographic that a float has been designed for? No, it's not. I, I think the um, the people that know all about it from past experiences are often baby boomers. But uh, a lot of young people today, I don't think they've ever seen a waterbed. And they, they don't really have a clue about what it's about or what the support's about. But I think if they went into a store that had a full selection of product and they tried it out, um, they're first of all, they're probably not going to end up ever with a inner spring mattress that's firm, old-style stuff. There is so much in the way of choices on foam um, that they'll discover that. And if they go down the line and they try them all out and they, they try out a waterbed, they're going to realize a couple things that they don't get on foam. The temperature is going to match whatever you want as far as comfort. So you get into a warmer bed at night and memory foam in a cool room can be very cold and you have to warm up that spot. And then in the middle of the night, it becomes very warm and you're, you're looking for some relief. Water beds don't do that. You have a consistent um, warm spot that you get into and it stays that way all night. It doesn't get any warmer. The afloat mattress, is that in stores right now or online? How do people find out about it? It's, um, it's online and it's in, in South, South Florida at okay. City Furniture. Yeah. So aside from the waterbed, you've had your hands in designing so many other products from solar showers to inflatable kayaks to camping mattresses. Um, You founded a company called Basic Designs, um, which designed and manufactured camping, outdoor, and sailboat equipment, and you eventually sold that to a division of K2. And then you were co-founder of Advanced Elements, a design and manufacturing company for inflatable kayaks and other outdoor equipment. So what percentage of all of these products that you've designed are related to the water of, in some way? <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost kind of an accident in a way that they all oh. seem to be water-related. And I, uh. I feel most comfortable, too, when I, I live by the water. I live on the water. And um, I have a boat. And I, I think I've always been kind of a water person. I think I, uh, at 10 years old, I had a boat in Florida when I was growing up. And I spent a lot of time at the beach. Um, it's just, I never consciously thought about it, but I, I get very, um, I get a lot of joy out of water related products and water related experiences and kayaking and all that. Yes. How did you develop your idea for the solar shower? And, and, and first maybe it would be helpful maybe to just explain for those who might not be campers of, uh, what is the solar shower? Oh, it, it's an amazingly simple device. And, you know, I, 
I think so many ideas are complex and, you know, there's automatic transmissions and integrated circuits and this and that. And I, I think in terms of super simplicity and the idea was, okay, you go camping, you're um, going to um, be hiking through the dirt all day long and the dust and this and that. And what you'd really like to do is have a feel clean when you get into your incredible down sleeping bag <laughs> and not, not feel grimy and sweaty. So this, um, uh, it's a, a vinyl uh, bag, which um, has a clear top window in it and a black absorber panel. And behind that, there's a layer, a very thin micro layer of foam. And behind that, another layer of, of vinyl that encapsulates that. So you fill it with two and a half or five gallons of water, it depends on the size you buy, and put it in the sun for three hours. And, you know, 60, 70 degree water will turn into like 105 degree water in good sunshine. Um, you just leave it flat on the ground. And you hang it up, gravity flow, and with a shower nozzle on it, you can have a, a really decent shower. Um, millions of people bought them. And uh, super simple and very useful. I wish I, I'd known about or I wish it existed when I was on the Appalachian Trail 22 yes. years ago because I had a, a, a much inferior version of your product that did not have any solar panels. And I used it almost every night when I got to camp, but usually it was freezing. Um, uh, what year was this invented? This was uh, mid-70s. Yeah. Okay, so yeah, it was definitely Yeah, around. we still sell them now, and, and mm -hmm. they are surprisingly popular all this time. It's just a useful, simple, inexpensive item. Tell us about your inflatable kayak. Uh, well, um, water sports, obviously, uh, something I'm really interested in. And um, the idea of having a, um, an, a kayak that you can put in your trunk you know, a 12 or 10 foot or 16 foot kayak is a real issue about moving around. Uh, you have to have a roof rack and a big enough car for a big kayak. But these will go in a um, basically a zip up suitcase and you can inflate it in five, five to eight minutes. And these boats are pretty sophisticated in design in that they have a, um, a carefully designed bow and stern so that they paddle like a real boat, not a pool toy. And there's about, oh, there's a lot of models of our, our products now. And all of them are, are capable of being packed away in your trunk. And some are tandem, uh, some are singles. There's whitewater versions. There's all kinds of um, different styles. Um, and it just is a very convenient item. A lot of people with sailboats will use them as a tender. You don't have a big thing on deck that you have to stow. You can deflate it and pack it away. Um, and for adventure kayaking or, and whitewater kayaking, these things are great. And you use one uh, in Bainbridge Island? Do you, do you use one oh, yourself? Yeah. I do, yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, of your 40 or 50 patents, um, you know, what, what would you say is like the most unusual product you've ever designed and patented? Well, the waterbed certainly uh, got the most um, <laughs> visibility. And um, it's still uh, my favorite item, um, but I, I really like things that bring a little bit of joy and comfort to people. And um, water beds did that, sun showers did that, and even you know, even camping mattresses that I designed that 
we're not waterbeds that we're, but we're designed to do the contouring support of a, um, of a, of a waterbed with a three pound package of, of uh, material. What does the process uh, entail at a very high level to, to file a patent and, and how long does it typically take to go through and get approved? Um, patent law has changed a lot since my original waterbed, um, patent and it's, um, uh, I always depend on the expertise of a, of a patent attorney because the language and the, and writing a patent is, uh, not, um, my legal expertise. So, um, they are very useful in some respects, but they're also very expensive to pursue as far as infringers, um, and, uh, not that expensive necessarily to, to get, but um, it's really a license to sue and you have to have the money to do it with. And it depends on who is the um, infringer too, whether they can outspend you. It's not an easy thing for an individual vendor to, to pursue. Let's talk a little bit about the creative process. Um, you know, are there any patterns in terms of, times of day or activities or state of mind for the beginning of your ideas? So for example, do you get some of your best ideas while you're out kayaking? Um, you know, anytime, all the time or in the middle of the night. And uh, I have what I think, what I call is kind of a flypaper mind. And I, I just um, absorb a lot of stuff, whether I'm going to a trade show that's unrelated to anything I do just because I happen to be in the neighborhood or if I'm traveling in, uh, in China or in other places and I go to a trade show, I see stuff, manufactured goods and processes and materials. These all kind of stick somewhere. And then sometimes we'll pop out in a, in a product idea or a product improvement. And once you initially come up with an idea, um, what's the next step after that to actually uh, bring it to fruition? Well, I've had, um, I've had difficulty in selling ideas to other companies because they don't really understand or appreciate sometimes or understand the, the, the final result could be really good. Uh, like selling a waterbed, nobody's interested. Uh, starting a company and showing people how it works was what was required. And the same was true about other simple ideas. Uh, Sun Shower was the product that kicked off basic designs and made it the bigger company uh, just because it was simple and useful. But um, that was a, um, a small startup that got visibility gradually and people could identify uh, with the use of it. And then I built a company around it. And what part of the process for you is most energizing? Is it the initial light bulb? Is it seeing the finished product? Is it hearing from customers who are uh, enjoying it? What, what's the best part for you? I, I really like to get customer feedback, and it helps with a lot of improvements, too. And um, that's, that's a very important part of it. So this is a question I could ask, you know, painters or, or authors as well. How do you know when you're actually done with a design, when it's ready to go? Oh, I, I kind of um, never feel like I'm done. <laughs> I, it's, it's an evolving process. And, you know, I could, <clears throat> like waterbeds, for example, um, yeah, I could say, well, I'm done early on and, you know, I'm 68 or 69 
but no, it evolved dramatically from from the um, first concept into a modern, uh, more modern product that took care of some of the faults of the original one. And you didn't start off studying industrial design. Uh, how did you initially get into it at San Francisco State? How did you know that really this is your calling? Well, um, <clears throat> I think I, um, as many kids do, you kind of follow your parents' educational um, direction for a while. But um, I was always a um, a builder of strange things in the garage and liked to put things mm-hmm. together. And I had a, a good mechanical aptitude. Uh, but my, I think my parents wanted me to pursue a liberal arts degree. And <clears throat> I had, before I graduated, I had five different majors. And finally, I think I piled up more credits in history than anything else. So that's why the degree was in history. Uh, but uh, business, art, uh, all kinds of other stuff were mixed into that. Um, and photography, uh, just all kinds of stuff that I took a lot of before I ended up with a history degree. But one day I was actually, I was at a design show at the school from this department. And I said, you know, this is the stuff I really like to do. Now it's my turn. So I went back and I took a lot of prerequisites and entered that program, which was a pretty free form at the time. You could design your curriculum based on, on some particular interests. And um, I had a couple of exceptional professors, and um, they were really inspiring with um, uh, ideas and looking at things in a fresh approach. And, you know, like Buckminster Fuller and people that were um, design um, gurus at the time uh, were very influential in, 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 that, in that world of design. And um, it, was, it was a great place to be, especially, you know, also 70s or 60s late 60s in San Francisco, I was living in the Haight-Ashbury prior to and during and after the Summer of Love and watched all the um, changes in the city. It was a very open, creative period of time there, and certainly I benefited from that. And I think I never could have started a company based on crazy ideas if I was living in Florida and talking to some banker. They would laugh. San Francisco, mm, Okay, we'll take a look at that. So, Over all the years of being exposed to interesting designs and going to trade shows and, and talking with others who do, do, do work similar to yours, but perhaps for totally different products, are there one or two products you've seen over the years that it just made you uh, made your draw job for whatever reason that really truly wowed you? Well, certainly a lot of things that have been, and you don't even think about it now until you look back historically, but Look at how the world has changed since um, since the uh, iPhone. Industries created that could never have existed without without innovations like that. Like you know, would there would there be um, uh, would there be any rideshare services? Would there be anything that's uh, done online that you can carry around in your pocket? No, those they wouldn't exist without that stuff. Those that was certainly world changing stuff. Um, just because. Uh, so many industries um, benefited from that technology. Char- Charlie, are there any books or websites uh, related to design, uh, thinking of any sort that you would recommend that have been truly you know, inspirational to you over the years? Um, 
there's a lot of books and I, a lot of art books and other things. And I, I can't think of specific titles right now. A, a book I read a week or so ago was called Game Changer, which was a, a story of Rob, Rob Angel is a, a, a gentleman who invented uh, Pictionary. But what I, re- what I liked about the book was that I re- could very much relate to the, um, to the entrepreneurial startup um, phase that he went through exactly sort of as I did as a garage startup. And it grew to a, um, a substantial size uh, game business for him. Um, but um, that I liked because of the entrepreneurial aspect. Wonderful. Well, I will certainly include that in the show notes as well as all the other resources we've talked about, including uh, links to the afloat bed in case folks want to learn more about that. And Charlie, thank you so much for taking the time to, to be with us today and to, to share more about your past. Uh, it's really, truly been a pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. You're welcome. Yes. Great to be here. Thanks. And, and for all of our listeners, uh, thanks for tuning in. And if you like today's show, uh, please uh, take a moment to leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Take care, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the North Star Unplugged Podcast. The audio version can be heard on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. The video version can be watched on YouTube on the North Star Unplugged channel. If you like North Star Unplugged, please subscribe and leave a review on one of those channels. Finally, all prior episodes are also on the North Star Sleep School website at northstarsleepschool.com, which offers an e-newsletter you can sign up for.